Thank you, Alan, for another great show. And good evening. You're watching Fred Paul on ADH-TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Now, we're increasingly being welcomed to our own country these days, which when it first started happening seemed to be a cute form of harmonious relations between traditional landowners and everyone else. If only gestures like, like that could remain just that, gestures. But this one has been imbued with political overtones that seem to diminish whatever goodwill was originally intended. Like the apology that is never accepted, the welcome is outstaying its welcome. As writer John Andriano asks in The Spectator today, quote, where is the end to this process of reconciliation? Or is it the gift that keeps on giving, unquote? A more depressingly perennial Indigenous policy is about how to manage troubled Indigenous kids. I'll have plenty to say about that in a second. Also tonight, I'll speak to the very impressive new Liberal member for the Melbourne seat of Menzies, Keith Woolahan, about his Irish roots, Menzies' forgotten people, and why he signed up to the Australian Defence Force when most other Aussies would rather flee than defend their own country. Plus, I'll speak to the great Stephen Senatiempo about Scott Morrison's power plays and a horrifying story from the Canberra Hospital. And we'll have a bit of fun with the idea that ice cream and chocolate can help achieve world peace. Now, let's get into it. The Dondale Youth Detention Centre in Darwin has for years been one of the most shameful institutions in Australia's history. The most notorious moment in this facility's litany of horror was when ABC's Four Corners broadcast a show called Australia's Shame in July 2016. It showed a troubled teenager called Dylan Voller chained to a chair in a concrete cell with a black hood over his head. The nation reeled in shock. Then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull called an immediate Royal Commission into the Northern Territory's juvenile justice system. When the Commission reported a year later, it found, quote, shocking and systemic failures, unquote, and recommended Don Dale be shut down immediately. Five years later, Don Dale is still open and the Territory Government is still neglecting its duties to the inmates. The ABC recently obtained documents under Freedom of Information, because of course these things aren't freely shared, that show the government has, quote, failed to adhere to a key part of its own legislation for more than a year, unquote. That requirement was for independent visitors to inspect the facility every month and report back to the minister with any concerns. But, says the ABC this week, quote, between April last year and June this year, when a total of 28 visits should have occurred, only two were undertaken, unquote. During one of those visits, the observer saw blood smeared on the wall of a cell, which had not been cleaned because, the observer was told, there wasn't enough staff. If that's any indication of what's going on in Don Dale now, then we might need another Royal Commission. In a pathetic attempt to cover itself, the Territory Government, having initially tried to restrict the ABC's access to records on the matter, blamed COVID for the lack of inspection visits. 
as if catching a flu was more important than caring for the most troubled and disadvantaged kids in Australia. Now, nobody should pretend that dealing with troubled teenagers in the Territory is a walk in the park. It's not. Most of these kids have since birth known nothing but alcoholism, violence, loneliness and despair. Some have never once experienced the familial love that most other people take for granted. By the time they reach Don Dale, the damage done to them is almost impossible to reverse. You can't blame this on the supposedly systemic racism of Australia. Most Australians genuinely despair for the kids who wind up at Don Dale. You don't need to be a social worker to identify the cause of this. It's lack of schooling and lack of employment, both of which are a consequence of the breakdown of families. Cartoonist Bill Leake dared to publish an image depicting this in 2016, and as a result, was vilified by leftists across the nation. His cartoon, blaming a deadbeat dad for the trouble his kid wound up in, was deliberately misinterpreted as racist. Leek, who was a close friend of mine until he died of a heart attack in 2017, was anything but racist. The vitriolic response to the cartoon focused on the supposed offence towards Indigenous dads but disturbingly overlooked the one person Leek cared about the most, the poor, neglected child. Five years later, that child is still being neglected. And the virtue signalling that enables all the most destructive and idiotic policies also continues. One of the first things Prime Minister Anthony Albanese did after winning office was to abolish the cashless debit card, which had been introduced by the coalition in 2016 to prevent Indigenous people blowing their welfare checks on alcohol and drugs. To add to the trauma, the Territory Government also lifted its grog bans on troubled communities. In her maiden speech to Parliament, the wonderful new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price said, quote, I could not offer two more appalling examples of legislation pushed by left-wing elites that are guaranteed to worsen the lives of Indigenous people, unquote. Here's another story that will have leftists all over it. The ABC reports today that, quote, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island children are nearly 10 times more likely to be removed from their families by child protection services compared to non-Aboriginal children. And data shows the number of Indigenous children in out-of-home care is projected to double by 2029." Unquote. This is alarming and we should be addressing the cause of this as a priority. Breaking families up should always be a last resort, but it should also be an option, if only for the sake of the child. If an Indigenous child is growing up in conditions that are unacceptable for white kids, then a foster home needs to be found. To differentiate between the welfare of black and white kids in these depressing circumstances and helping white kids while leaving Indigenous kids to endure the violence and neglect is, by any definition, racist. And doing so will only guarantee that more and more kids will find themselves locked up in the hellhole of Dondale Youth Detention Centre.
Well, as we all know, one way to achieve world peace and harmony between races and nationalities is through food products. Racism in Australia was struck an almost fatal blow when Coon Cheese was renamed Cheers last year. The backlash against the sandwich filler's decades of racism was so strong that most consumers even stopped buying the cheese under its new name, just to make sure this form of dairy product bigotry was dispatched to history once and for all. The latest food companies to make their contribution to harmony are Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream and Whittaker's Chocolate in New Zealand. Ben & Jerry's is famous for convincing its mostly white customers that the only thing standing between them and committing vile hate crimes is a, is a packet of their cookie dough pieces, spelt P-E-A-C-E-S. The company was sold to multinational Unilever for $325 million in 2000. Unilever then sold a license to an Israeli manufacturer, but didn't seek approval for it from the Ben & Jerry's independent board. The Ben & Jerry's board was livid that it wasn't consulted and feared, quote, irreparable harm, unquote, to its moral reputation. This is not the sort of conflict that can be solved over a couple of cones of salted caramel, of course, so the lawyers were called in and a judge came down on the side of the Israeli licensee. The good news is that now racist Israelis can feel the love of the ice cream maker's hippie founders and stop running for cover whenever Palestinians lob missiles on their neighbourhoods, because doing that would be, you know, racist. Over in New Zealand, Whitaker's has renamed its popular creamy milk bars Maraka Karimi, which is the Maori equivalent. The change will only be for the duration of Maori Language Week, though. Once that's over, the bars will revert to their white colonial titles. The truly harmonious aspect of all this food activism, though, is that no matter what they are called or where they're sold, ice cream and chocolate have another effect regardless of skin colour. They make all people equally fat. Wokeness, too, has a reasonably predictable and unbiased effect on companies. It almost always sends them stone cold broke. Well, it's been astonishing to watch United States President Joe Biden use the FBI and other gov government agencies to target his political nemesis, Donald Trump, going so far as to raid his home on a bogus search for classified documents. The use of the state for political purposes is something we thought only happened in banana republics. For it to be happening in the United States is alarming enough, but for it to be happening under Joe Biden, whose own family is as crook as Rookwood, and whose political allies are allegedly involved in everything from child sex rings to confiscation of incriminating evidence, is pos positively chilling. It makes you glad you live in Australia. Or does it? Politics is now more adversarial than ever. It's now a zero-sum power game where holding on to office requires, in the famous words of former Labor Minister Graham Richardson, whatever it takes. The latest iteration of this is the inquiry announced yesterday into the secret portfolios of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. His successor, Anthony Albanese, is trying to make conspicuous mileage from this. What he doesn't stop to contemplate is that there are as many reasons to inquire into Labor's abuse of power, such as scrapping the Australian Building and Construction Commission or, re or the relaxation of rules regarding the way super funds report how they've spent members' money. Both of these reek of conflicts of interest,
and have direct effects on punters like you and me. But no, instead, Albo is stamping his little foot and demanding we get to the bottom of, of the powers Morrison unwisely acquired, but for the most part, wisely never exercised. My next guest is the great Stephen Senatiampo, the breakfast announcer at Canberra's 2CC, who has some strong opinions about this. Stephen, welcome back to the show. G'day, Fred. So, Stephen, I, I think Australians were right to be concerned about this power grab by Morrison at first, but now it's just Albo trying to score easy political runs, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I think there's it, there's two parts to it. Sure, it's um, it's scoring political points. It's a bit of a get square for the Royal Commission into the unions. But I think now it's just become a distraction from the actual game of government. I mean, the reality is that Anthony Albanese's come to power has realised that government is a lot harder than he thought it was going to be when he was in opposition. And anything he can do to distract from actually getting on with the job um, is um, is the name of the game these days. I mean, you know, he promised in the lead up to the election that he was going to bring increased real wages. Well, we now know that real wages are, are lower than they were 10 years ago and are the lowest they've been in a long, long time. He was going to reduce our energy prices. Well, I, I got a letter from my energy provider yesterday telling me that my energy bill's going up $15 a week. So, you know, I mean, uh, all of the things that he said he was going to do, except, of course, for the Indigenous voice to Parliament, which seems to be the only thing he's focused on other than the get square with Scott Morrison, um, is absolutely appalling. But I think Richard Miles belled the cat when he said that there needs to be political consequences for Scott Morrison's behaviour, not consequences because he might have contravened the uh, the Constitution or might have done something illegal, as we now know that he hasn't, because the, the Solicitor General handed down a report saying there was nothing actually illegal about what he did. But I always thought political consequences were delivered by us, the voter at the ballot box, and we did that. I, I, when is this going to be over? Very good, very good question. Also, regarding the Solicitor General, I thought there was a slight inconsistency about his finding yesterday. Stephen Donoghue couldn't find anything illegal in Morrison's behaviour, but he also said that Morrison, quote, fundamentally undermined, unquote, the democratic process. I think he's having it both ways here, Stephen. Surely the only way to fundamentally undermine democracy is to do something illegal. Well, that's right. But I think the problem is, Fred, is we've, we've lost sight of what democracy means. Democracy means rule by the people, which means we make a decision at the ballot box. Once we elect somebody, they get on with doing the job, whether we like it or not. And then we have a chance at the next election to say, well, no, we're going to exercise our democratic right to say we weren't happy with what you did for the last three years, which is exactly what we did. But this concept that this is the greatest existential crisis in Australia's political history or since 1975, at least, is just absolute bunkum. This is clearly a distraction from the fact that Labor has come to power and gone, well, now what? <laughs> I've, got, I've suddenly got a funny image of Albo walking the, the, the corridors of Parliament House with a confused look on his face. But anyway, so <laughs> let, let's get out of Canberra for a change and talk about the Liberals in New South Wales, because you are well connected uh, to the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Rob Stokes well, is... Well, I was once upon a you, time. You yeah. were. Well, you, you know the party well, yes. let's put it that way, yes. Rob Stokes yeah. is calling for the party to emulate the Teals, Stephen, in yeah. such areas as integrity, environment and diversity. Now, I thought the way to win an election would be to embrace the principles of freedom, justice and prosperity instead. Stokes has also said the greatest... Right. 
Stokes has also said the greatest threat to the Liberal Party in the election next March is not the Teals, but the Liberal Party itself. Stephen, what's going on? What direction should the, the, the New South Wales Liberal Party go in to win the election in March? Can I say, Rob Stokes might be right that the Liberal Party is its worst enemy. There's no two ways about that. But can I just backtrack for a moment? I, I interviewed Rob Stokes, it must have been about six years ago, regarding uh, a, a land use conflict between the thoroughbred industry and the coal mines up in the Hunter Valley. And the interview lasted 16 minutes. Rob Stokes answered one question in that whole interview. And it was right at the end. I said, Minister, if you weren't going to answer any of my questions, why did you bother coming on the show? And he said, well, because you asked me to. I mean, that's the quality of um, a politician Rob Stokes is, let's face it. But no, I mean, the Liberal Party needs to get back to its its core values of, you know, the the, the John Howard principles the, of, of conservatism and classical liberalism, getting back to that, you know, freedom of opportunity, getting, you know, to use ScoMo's words, uh, you get a go when you have a go. I mean, all of this rubbish of trying to emulate other bodies is just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, I, and I've said this time and time again, why would you vote for the counterfeit version when you can real, vote for the real version? So if we're going to emulate the, the, the teals, why wouldn't you just vote teal? It's just, it's absolutely extraordinary. And let's be honest, it's the Rob Stokeses of the world and that, that left faction of the Liberal Party, the Matt Keynes, et cetera, that have destroyed the New South Wales Liberal Party. If they get back to classical liberalism and conservatism, people like Nathaniel Smith and Anthony Roberts and those guys, if they let them lead the charge, if Dominic Perrottet finds his true self, they've actually got half a chance of winning the next election. If they keep going the way they're going, they are going to get absolutely routed. Well, Stokes's comments suggest there's a certain amount of pessimism or scepticism about the, the, the party's chances in, in retaining power in March. That leads to questions about who's having second thoughts about even running, Stephen. Who, who do you, are you hearing that anyone's going to jump ship and uh, will they even be missed? Look, I, I, the only one I've heard definitively is, is um, Jeff Lee, the member for Parramatta, and he'll, there'll be no great loss there, that's for sure. Uh, I know that Chris Galaptis has decided to go up on the North Coast, the Nationals uh, member for Clarence. Now, he will be a loss because he's, he's actually a force to be reckoned with in his own electorate. And he's one of those nationals that will actually stand up to his own government when they get out of line. But I get a feeling there might be more to that um, on a personal level for why he's uh, decided that he's had enough. Um, but, you know, I'm hearing rumblings that there are some others around that are going to go. But most of them are from that Matt Keane left faction. And you know, if they're gone, well, I think the Liberal Party is only better for them. And it gives them an opportunity, even if they do lose, to rebuild, much like at the federal level now. All of the deadwood got cut out at the last election. There's an opportunity for Peter Dutton to rebuild if he can take the reins. Um, and the opportunity is the same in New South Wales. Well, that's, an, that's a positive way of looking at it. So what are the odds that Paratay can still win in March? Uh, look, as I said at the moment, I, don't, I think it's uh, odds to nothing that he's, he's, he's going to cop it in the neck. Um, but, you know, I, I think if he can be encouraged by some of those, some of his truer and more traditional supporters within the party, and, and let's, be, let's be honest about this, the rank and file membership of the Liberal Party in New South Wales are inherently conservative. They are traditional Liberal voters. Uh, it's the members of the state executive and uh, following on from that, the parliament, that are the problem. So if Perrottet, I, I guess, embraces his membership rather than those that are pulling the strings at a, at a parliamentary level, I think, you know, he's, he's a 50-50 shot. At the moment, I'd say probably 70-30 the other way. 
Never forget the forgotten people, as Robert Menzies might say. Now let's move to Canberra. Um, like their counterparts everywhere, Canberra politicians love an infrastructure project. In Canberra, it's no. the light rail, which goes from the northern suburbs to the city yep. centre. But it's recently become apparent that the money for the project was originally earmarked for something else. Stephen, where did they, where did they pilfer this money from? Well, the, the latest analysis was, and this all came about by uh, the Canberra Liberals, the opposition here, doing an analysis of budgets over the last um, few years. And it appeared that, because we've got a massive public housing shortage here in Canberra, there's 3,000 people on the waiting list. Uh, the current government is about to throw 300 people out of public housing because they need the money. They're going to sell these properties off. They promised nearly $700 million over the last few budgets to put into public housing. It turns out they only spent $81 million of that nearly $700 million. Well, that, that's how much was appropriated from budget funds for public housing. Well, a former Labor chief minister, John Stanhope, who was uh, kind of the mentor of the current chief minister, Andrew Barr, has done an analysis of the figures and determined that all of that money has gone into this light rail project. Now, the light rail project, um, I call it the road to nowhere, because if you remember driving into Canberra, you used to get that beautiful tree-lined visage as you drove down Northbourne Avenue. No more. There's this bright red train that literally goes nowhere. It goes from the town of Gungarland to the city centre, straight down the main road and achieves nothing. But because we've got a uh, Labor-Greens government here that loves any sort of green project and if they had their way, we'd all be riding push bikes or walking to work, they've gone for this light rail and everything else has been neglected because of it. Probably most our health system, because there was a, uh, a suggestion that um, billions had been ripped out of the health system. Money that was earmarked for a redevelopment of the Canberra Hospital had gone into light rail. Now we see that money has been ripped out of public housing to go into light rail. This is supposed to be the most progressive government in Australia, and it seems to be the only people they don't care about are poor people or sick people. It's extraordinary. Well, that that leads very well onto our next topic, and it's it's actually a heartbreaking one, and it involves Canberra Hospital. It's the tragic story of five-year-old Rosalia. This is one of the most heartbreaking stories I've heard lately, and it only yeah. gets worse uh, the more you hear of it. And it sheds a very disturbing light on the attitude of some public hospital staff. Now, Rosalia started feeling unwell on June 28, and her mum took her to a GP. She was four years old at the time. Uh, she was diagnosed mm. with an ear infection. Uh, she was still unwell the next morning, which happened to be her fifth birthday. And she was lethargic and had a puffy face. She's normally a en very energetic child, and uh, this alarmed her mum. She was taken back to the GP, who said, take the kid to Canberra Hospital. Now, if Rosalia's mum's recollections are correct, the response from the staff there was an absolute disgrace with, it's yep. terrible to say, tragic consequences. Rosalia and her mum were treated like unwelcome interlopers at a public hospital and at one stage were asked if they would like to go home and visit a GP instead because there was a four-hour wait at a time when the staff were just standing around and there weren't many people seeking medical, medical help anyway. At every stage, the staff either declined to help or provided it begrudgingly. Rosalia vomited and was too weak to stand up or even raise her head, but still the staff weren't interested. Eventually, doctors were found and there was a call to have Rosalia airlifted to Sydney. Now, Stephen, what happened then? 
Well, unfortunately, while they were waiting for the helicopter to arrive, uh, little Rosalia died, um, as it turns out, from influenza A. And it's just a tragic story. I mean, I, I'd call it a comedy of errors, but that almost diminishes what actually happened. Um, well over 24 hours, this poor family were waiting in the emergency room with a five-year-old girl on her birthday, no less, uh, who was clearly very, very ill, um, and treatment came too late. And it, look, it, I don't want to blame the staff of the hospital. Clearly, they dropped the ball here. But this is just indicative of the failures of the health system here in the ACT. We've got a government that won't invest. And we've got a group. And I mean, you know yourself, uh, Fred, if you walk into a toxic workplace each and every day, you stop caring. Now, as I said to Rosalia's grandfather, who owns a restaurant here in Canberra, I said, if one of your staff stops caring, they might drop a plate. When staff at a hospital stop caring, people die. And, and that was the consequence here. It's gotten to the point where the, the culture in our health system here in Canberra is so toxic that we've got staff that just don't want to turn up to work anymore. And when that happens in frontline emergency services, the consequences are tragic. But the treatment of this family has been disgraceful, not only at a medical level, but also at a political level. It's, it's now being, it's part of a, uh, subject to a coronial inquest now. So I don't want to go into too much detail, but even the health minister here has tried to play uh, use this for political points against her opponent. The the shadow health minister, Leanne Cassley, reached out to the family and has, and has actually become friends with the family and has been supporting them through this. Um, the health minister decided to send the family an email saying, uh, my condolences, but as a stranger, I didn't think it was appropriate to reach out, but I'm disappointed that the shadow health minister has, uh, has reached out and supported you. I mean, it, it's just every step of this has been sickening. And these are the kind of people that that any town would be happy to have. I mean, they're, they're a family that they work hard. They're, they're very, I mean, they, most of them live in the same house together. They work in the restaurant together. They're hard workers. They contribute to the community. But when they wanted something back from their government that they pay exorbitant taxes and rates to, consequences were dire. And it's just, uh, I, I, it, it breaks my heart to talk about this because I've become quite close to the family now and they are really good people. And this, well, this shouldn't happen to anybody. But when it happens to somebody that you sort of you get to know on a personal level and you know that it could have been avoided, um, and even at the moment, and, and this is what really drives home, budget estimates hearings are taking place here in the ACT at the moment. And part of the problem here is we don't have paediatric cardiolog cardiologist specialists here in Canberra. So if something like this happens to Rosalia, so it was influenza, but it was eventually her heart that, that gave out because of uh, the lack of treatment. And the response from the government is, well, you know, we're too small. We can't afford to have our own uh, specialists, and we have no um, no interest, no inclination to make sure that we have a, a paediatric cardiology unit anywhere in Canberra. It's just it's dismissive every time anything gets it needs doing, unless of course you want to buy an electric car or you want to drive a tram or you know you you want to do some sort of absolute woke BS. That's all of this this government cares about when it comes to the the fundamental basic services of healthcare, law and order. Don't get me started on our lack of police and, and the crime waves down here. We're going to legalise hard drugs. Ice and heroin are going to be decriminalised in the ACT. Uh, you know, just the basics get forgotten every time and people are now dying because of it. It's just heartbreaking, Stephen, and good on you for reporting it. I've listened to your interview with uh, Rosalia's mum, and it is—it's uh, very moving. Um, I, I hope the I hope the family finds some strength at the end of all this. Stephen Senatiempo, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you next week. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the breakfast presenter at Canberra's Two Double C.
Now, one of the most impressive new members of parliament from the federal election this May is the member for Menzies, Keith Woolahan. Keith was born in Dublin in 1977 and moved to Australia when his parents migrated here in the nation's bicentenary year, 1988. He attended his local public school in East Melbourne, then got an arts degree from Melbourne Uni and a law degree from Monash and became a barrister in 2010. Nine years ago, he also graduated from Cambridge, no less, with an honours degree in international relations. In between all that, Keith has served in the Australian Army, rising to the rank of captain, and toured East Timor and Afghanistan, and received a commendation for distinguished service. All that before he's even turned 35 years old. Yesterday, he added to that list of impressive achievements, newspaper opinion writer with a splendid and succinct piece in Melbourne's Herald Sun about Anthony Albanese's voice to parliament. In it, he said Albo had overstepped the mark by making a moral judgment about the forthcoming referendum about the voice. And I'm delighted to say he's joining me now to discuss this and some other topics. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Fred, and, and welcome to your viewers and listeners. So in your piece in the Herald Sun yesterday, you said that Albo was, quote, disingenuous, unquote, to make an ad hominem attack on people who disagree with him about these proposed changes to the Constitution. Can you elaborate on that? What is clear from the election is that Anthony Albanese is our Prime Minister and he has a mandate to put the question of a voice to the people by way of referendum. But the mandate to put the question is not a mandate to put the answer. In a referendum, the answer is to the people. And so it is the people that will decide. And so when Anthony Albanese describes his view, and he has it held sincerely and passionately for the yes cause as one being on the right side of history, I think that risks setting up the result in an undemocratic way. Because if we accept that the people will always get it right, and if the people vote no, which they are entitled to do, then I don't think it's fair on them to describe them as being on the wrong side of history or lacking manners. Uh, I think that is dangerous rhetoric from a prime minister. By all means, be an advocate for the yes case, but he has to leave room for the legitimacy of a no case. It would be unde undemocratic otherwise, wouldn't it? It would. And, and the Prime Minister has said quite rightly that there will be a national conversation for this debate. And a conversation requires um, voices be heard from both sides. And I don't think we can ever be afraid of that. Uh, I sense that there are fierce advocates for the yes case that are terrified of this failing. And maybe that's rational. But what they should not be terrified of is the people hearing both sides. Um, this is a democracy and they deserve to hear both sides, including voices like Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. Well, Keith, I'm interested to know your stance on the voice to parliament. How will you be voting? As it's currently proposed, will you support it or reject it? Well, my, I'm a member of the, the Liberal Party and Peter Dutton has said that the Liberal Party has an open mind on the voice. And, and I respect and understand that position. But in the end, I will be one of millions of people who will vote on it. And, and I will approach that with an open mind. But, but I start from a position of being a constitutional conservative. I think our constitution is one of the, the most amazing documents. It's not full of flowery language or rhetoric. 
but it serves a very important purpose. And that is it, it has made us one of the most stable liberal democracies on earth. So my default is always not to change it. I haven't seen the case to justify changing it, but I, I always have an open mind and we'll see how this debate progresses. Eminently sensible. Now, uh, let's get back to you uh, arriving at Parliament. You challenged Kevin Andrews, who was a doyen of the Victorian Liberal Party, for pre-selection in the safe seat of Menzies. Uh, your success was portrayed as a generational change in the party, but you've also had to fend off accusations, if I can use that word, that you're a moderate. Now, Keith, very, very briefly, how would you describe your politics? And can I say at the outset, uh, Kevin Andrews served this electorate for 31 years and, and, and the nation as well as a minister and the father of the House with distinction. Uh, that was a ballot about renewal. It wasn't a ballot about being a conservative or a moderate. Uh, one of the first interviews I did after the pre-selection, I was asked that question and said very clearly and openly, I'm not a moderate, never joined the party to be a moderate. And when Peter Dutton was elected leader of the Liberal Party, I thought he put it perfectly when he said he didn't join the Conservative Party, he didn't join the Moderate Party, he joined the Liberal Party. And I joined the Liberal Party in 1996, and that's a critical year for the Liberal Party. It was the first year of one of our most successful periods in government. So I like to consider myself a Howard Costello Liberal, and, and I will look to the work and values of Howard and Costello on national security, on economics and on values. Okay, let's talk about defence. Given that you, given that you have a, a military experience, the Defence Strategic Review Team has swung into action as a response to increasing tension in our region. It says we need three new air warfare destroyers, which will cost about $2 billion each, and we should aim to have them by the end of the decade. But it gets even slower than that. Their final recommendation on the matter won't be delivered till next March. Keith, you're a military man. Is this moving fast enough? We can always move things quicker, um, but th th that is a difficult thing to do. Um, we live in a precarious strategic environment and time is of the essence. I, I think any reasonable person who cares about Australia would recognise that. I noted that article in the media and I noted the potential delivery by uh, Navantia uh, by the end of the decade. That, that's a long time away. That's eight years away. But building ships is not easy and particularly building the combat systems that go into them isn't easy. I think we should always look to the detail in these things. And if the article reflects the recommendations that are being made and, and I have uh, no information otherwise, I note that it gives options for where the ships would be built. So if the assessment is that we need them, then, then that is to be accepted. But where they are built, I, I think that is a factor that should be weighted highly in bringing them quicker. And I think historically, there's always been this tension between industry policy and defence policy. I think in this environment, defence policy is the most important consideration. And, and that means whatever can get it quicker should be prepared. Are you saying build them here now? Is that what you're saying? Well, it depends. Um, it, it, I, it, these are complex acquisitions. And if building here is quicker, so be it. If building overseas is quicker, so be it. And then there's other considerations about having a sovereign manufacturing capability. These are very difficult considerations. Um, but what I am worried about is the former Labor Defence Minister being a part of that strategic review because we should judge people on their actions and their record rather than what they say. And, and it is quite 
concerning about his record, uh, which saw cuts to defence at the largest level in 70 years. So this is not the time to be cutting defence. And and if the first recommendation is that we need to bring forward acquisitions, well, then that's encouraging. How urgently do we need to bolster our defence given China's behaviour lately? I think when you don't need to just look at the behaviour in our region. I also look at Russia's behaviour in Ukraine. Uh, I think we, as James Patterson said on an interview recently, when um, when regimes uh, speak, we should listen. And and I think we've often assumed that it was irrational that an aggressive act would be taken in the 21st century. I think re- Ukraine has put that to bed. So we need to accelerate everything we can do. And uh, in the military, we were very aware that uh, Russia has one of the largest armoured capabilities in the world. And whether it was by design or accident, Ukraine having the Javelin missile uh, in numbers that meant they could defend their city was critical. And and these are very specific decisions that are made. Uh, A Russian T-72 tank can cost anywhere of 20 US million, but a Javelin costs 80,000 US dollars. So if you consider purchasing particular missiles, whether they're against armour or ships, and then have them ready in number, it makes the calculus of invading another country uh, very difficult. And I think those are the sort of specific decisions that need to be made in the region and also within our country. Well, speaking about the region, the current government's diplomatic efforts in the South Pacific could be summarised, if I could be facetious about it, by, by saying this, Australia is causing climate change in the region. Here's some cash to stop your islands being swamped by the ocean. Now, please don't let China build a naval base in your archipelago. Keith, am I being a bit too simplistic there or is that on the money? I, I think you are. To, to be fair to the Albanese government on foreign policy and, and national security so far, I have been pleasantly surprised, as has the coalition. And uh, national security uh, should always be Um, above politics and where good decisions are made they should be recognised. That doesn't mean it's perfect. And and again, we come back to the decision to have former Minister Stephen Smith on the strategic review. Uh, In terms of the specific question about climate change, I'm not a diplomat, but, but I would imagine that if something is important to a country, then it's important to, to us. Um, But I think that this is a complex game that is being played in the Pacific. And and, and I think um, it's not just about climate change. There's other interests that are at play. And and, and we have a wonderful foreign office. And, and, and I think we should listen to them in terms of what is the best approach for each particular uh, Pacific nation. Well, for the past few decades, Australia has equivocated about its place in Asia. But if some pundits are to be believed, we must now choose a side. In the words of political advisers Michael Keating and John Stanford, we should now seek security in Asia rather than from Asia because, quote, China is here to stay as a great power in this volatile region we call home, unquote. That's from a piece in the Weekend Australian. Keith, are these two people suggesting we appease a communist dictatorship? I read that article too. I, I didn't read the word appeasement in there and, and um, some other commentators have maybe hinted on that word, but uh, I think this is quite clear. We should always stand up for our values and for the national interest. 
Uh, and as um, my colleague, um, uh, Shadow Minister Hasty has said, um, weakness is provocative. Uh, so it's not in our interests to project weakness. And if you were to flag in advance um, decisions like that, uh, we would be less secure. Um, I've been a student of international relations and sometimes the theory doesn't always match with the practice, but there's there's one area that's quite important and, um, and, and that's in the area of the security dilemma. So when we make decisions or actions, they have counteractions and responses like we do. Uh, and an example of that is the wonderful work that was done by the Morrison government on AUKUS and the Quad. Uh, that was in reaction to decisions made by China. But when you well, look at that principle, sorry. Well, as strategists have been saying since ancient Greece, if you want peace, prepare for war. Well, well, well that's right. But it, but it, this this is five dimensional chess. We, we we have to be you know we we have to be sophisticated in our language, and, and that is important, um, and it must be done carefully. And and when you look at security in the international world, we will be secure if China feels secure. So all parties and nations need to, in this complex game, feel secure. And how you achieve that is not easy, but I, I, I don't think it comes in projecting weakness or appeasement, and, and I would never be an advocate for that. Now, Keith, before you go, uh, your maiden speech to Parliament was uh, unfortunately delayed during the first sitting, but finally you will get to deliver your maiden speech uh, at the next sitting next month. Can you give us a hint about what you will be talking about in this important on this important occasion? Well, it's um, on the 5th of September, if uh, your viewers or listeners want to tune in, uh, just straight after question time. So I'll be called uh, to stand um, as soon as uh, the Prime Minister's question time is over on Monday, the 5th of September. Uh, I like to, you mentioned at the start that the safe seat of Menzies, it's no longer a safe seat. In fact, there's no safe seats anymore in politics. I think that era is gone. And, and that that is a good thing. Um, it means none of us take our seats for granted. So I want to I want to write a love letter to Menzies. I, I want to talk about the people in this seat. There's 170,000 of them. There's 50,000 families, 44 schools, and it's a wonderful part of Melbourne and the world. And, and Melbourne has done it tough the last few years. Uh, we face longer lockdowns than anywhere else in the country, some of the longest in the world. And, um, and I want to talk about uh, the people who endured that and they're still standing strong and, and I'm their voice. Uh, so I'll certainly be focusing on the people and the community that I represent. Well, it's going to be worth listening to if that's, if that's a taste of it with uh, compassion, intelligence and uh, care for your constituents. Keith, so much, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. That's the very impressive new member for the federal Melbourne seat of Menzies, Keith Willihan. Now, before I leave you to enjoy the rest of your night, for the past week, much has been said about the Prime Minister of Finland. Her name is Sanna Marin. She's 36 years old and has been the Prime Minister since 2019. But for the past week, Marin has been at the centre of a huge debate. Namely, is a Prime Minister allowed to party and have a good time? Since it's the year of 2022, the era of the snowflake generation where everyone's precious and everyone's a Mother Teresa and a Puritan who can do no wrong, it's no surprise that this has now grown right out of proportion. It's no secret the Finnish PM likes to party. She's been spotted before nightclubbing in Helsinki till 4am, 
Last week, videos of her dancing with friends and celebrities surfaced. She'd clearly had a bit to drink, but hey, who hasn't? The media then got their knickers in a knot, claiming that Marin must have taken something because some comments heard in the video apparently referred to narcotics. Marin strongly denied taking any drugs, but the media couldn't stop salivating, so she took a drug test last Friday to clear up any suspicions, and it came back negative. But then the media vultures have continued, and now a photo has surfaced, which was taken at Marin's official residence. The picture shows two women kissing, lifting their tops to bare their torsos and covering their breasts with a sign that says Finland. Well, on the bright side, it doesn't get much more patriotic than that. Marin confirmed this week that the picture was taken after she attended a music festival in July. She said she had friends at her residence at the time going to the sauna. Speaking to reporters yesterday, she said, quote, I think the picture is not appropriate. I apologise for it. Such a picture should not have been taken." Unquote. Now, this picture is probably too far and too undergraduate. But look, if the voters of Finland believe that their Prime Minister, who's 36, spends too much time hosting shindigs and not enough time focusing on the issues that matter to them, then they can vote her out at the next election. It's that simple. That's how democracy works. We always whinge about cookie-cutter politicians and how they lose the public because they're vanilla. Yet when we get someone with flair and personality who may be a bit eccentric, think Dor uh, Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, they're hounded by the media. And here was Albo the other night at Sydney's Edmore Theatre attending a Gang of Youths gig when the crowd encouraged him to down his beer and he stood up and did it. Hawkey used to do the same and Aussies loved it. Everyone needs to just have a cold shower and stop being so sanctimonious. At the end of the day, politicians are human beings too. Well, that's it from me tonight. It was great to have your company and I'll see you again tomorrow night right here on ADH TV. Good night.